That's right, you are listening to On The Record. Kieran Goodhe with you until one o'clock today. 53106 is the text number. That would cost you 30 cent. Or as always, you can tweet me at Kieran Cudahy. Uh, with me in studio today, Nicola Byrne, founder of Cloud90 and president of the Irish Exporters Association. John Isle, head of communications with Goodbody. And John Moran, former, former Secretary General with the Department of Finance. Uh, very good morning to everyone. You're welcome. Um, just for people at home who haven't had a chance, well, they should have really. It's 11 o'clock to get out of bed and read the Sunday newspapers. We'll let them know what's on the front pages. Uh, starting with the Sunday Independent Casey, I won't quit Aura's race. Breaking new Big surprise there. Everyone was expecting him to pull out. Um, Peter Casey managing to stay on the front pages. Uh, we will talk about that a little bit later in the show. Sean Defoe, our own political correspondent, will be in with me after 12 talking, look about Peter Casey and that decision about the presidential polls that are in the paper there. You heard Trevor going through them in the news headlines um, and other political stories doing the rounds. Another story in the front page of the Independent I want to mention uh, from Shona Murray, Brexit, EU to offer UK-wide backstop. Uh, this had been ruled out previously by the EU um, as possibly giving the UK preferential treatment without signing up to the four freedoms, but that article uh, hinting that possibly there might be a bit of uh, wriggle room on that. At the front page of the Sunday Business Post, Coveney, businesses must fight Brexit with Project Truth. Tanisha, now is the time for people to speak up. Uh, fascinating story as well, referenced on the front page of the Business Post. It's inside on page three. About Richard Barrett's uh, 25 million euro offer to Frank MacDonald to launch an Irish Times rival, which entailed all of the major writers of the Irish Times leaving in a midnight raid to go to this new publication. And that, as I said, is inside on page three. Uh, The Sunday Times taxpayers foot bill for Higgins Home upgrades. Uh, The OPW carried out upgrading works on the the private home of President Michael D. Higgins in Galway. Uh, These included security gates and CCTV. Uh, They have a story on the front page as well. Bray schoolboy fighting deportation to China had fraudulent Irish passports. This, of course, is the story about Eric Xi Yingzhu, which we will talk about in more detail later. Uh, The Sunday World lead with uh, I live in fear of his relief. Brother of Crowbanger victim dreads day he'll meet killer again. Family says he was ambushed. Uh, This is Seamus O'Mahony, the brother of St. Farmer, Anthony, uh, dreading the day he says he'll meet the killer, Michael Ferris. And the Mail, Irish Mail on Sunday. President faces new questions over jet to Belfast. PSNI anger at Higgins's security escort claim. Like I said, we'll be chatting to Sean Defoe about all of that a little later, but just to remind people uh, about this story very briefly, it came up, uh, Peter Casey brought it up uh, during the Clare Byrne debate when Michael D. Higgins wasn't there, and then it got brought up again when Pat Kenny had all the candidates in studio during the week on Virgin. When I was giving the lecture to the Harry Holkery lecture in Queen's University on the future of Northern Ireland, we were advised that for security reasons I couldn't be picked up at the border. So the only way of giving the lecture was to go to Belfast. I'm perfectly happy to drive any time. Yeah, that was uh, Michael D speaking uh, on the Pat Kenny debate on Virgin during the week. Uh, so look, the PSNI have obviously come out and said, look, this was news to us and we would have provided security. We always would. Um, Michael D didn't mention the PSNI there, though he did say picked up at the border, which would indicate that, you know, someone north of the border <laughs> responsible for security should be picking him up. So we'll be talking about that with Sean a, a little bit later. But as I said, with me in studio, Nicola Byrne, John Isle and John Moore. And I want to start with the story that Shona Murray has. Uh, Shona, obviously, formerly of this parish on the front of the Sunday Independent Brexit EU to offer a UK-wide 
backstop. Uh, John, John Moran. I'll have to differentiate now between these surnames I'd have to use, like back in school. Moran. Um, This story, it did surprise me a little bit. I actually was talking to Shona about it this morning because my understanding was, you know, if you didn't sign up to the Four Freedoms, you weren't getting a a full backstop for the the entire UK. But uh, according to her sources, there may be a bit of... uh, Bit of flexibility on that. I, I, I don't know the the sources, right? So I mean, I <laughs> yeah. think the, the, it, the only thing to really talk about here and and probably help people understand is that when you try and do these negotiations, as we know ourselves through many things, there are lots of different steps along the way. I think somebody, I think it may have been Simon Coven, he said, you know, 90% of the, the stuff is agreed already. The last 10% remains. That doesn't mean that you want to have a tenth of the time to finish it off. The last, the hardest stuff always remains to the end, right? What's difficult in the context of the Brexit negotiations, as I sort of see it from outside the, the camp, is that it's easier to negotiate when you know what each party wants and to try and find a solution. And and here the real difficulty has been that you have a very divided sort of, you know, set of views coming out of the UK as to what they really want. You have a lot of sympathy for the fact that the solution needs to, to be found. OK, I mean, there was a very good reference in one of the newspapers this morning to a company who doesn't have a clue what's going to happen next March, right? If this fails, they're having a hard border. They employ 100 people. I think 70 farmers, you know, feed their their their, their factory with, with produce. And they're looking at a choice of a €700,000 bill if there's a no deal and maybe no bill if there is a deal. So the stakes are incredibly high here. And, and probably in a European context, what will have to happen is that every side, knowing that, will have to give something along the way. But they'll have to find a way for that to occur, frankly, at the last minute. Because there are so many different people with their own red lines. We've heard some very, you know, um, difficult language used to describe red lines in the past mm. couple of months. The only way to do it is really put that up to the last minute. And it's high stakes. I mean, it's it's very high stakes for everybody that's that's trying to watch it. And so I wouldn't be surprised so to see... The, the European Union make conciliatory noises, whether it's extensions, whether it's whatever, because they want to deal as well. It's, it's a myth to think that the EU is out there in some way to just sort of, you know, show the Brits and the British sort of government that this was the wrong decision and take advantage mm. of it. They understand the advantages economically, socially, politically for Europe in actually not having a schism in, in the, in the, in the, in the continent. This, then, John, I suppose it's a way of almost accepting that this, there's a difficulty uh, with this last ten percent that it will be last minute of kind of pushing out when that last minute is. Is it you know if, if you give kind of a, a full customs backstop, that's complicated to negotiate in and of itself. So you probably with that extend the transition period. You're just buying a little bit of time, really. Is that it? Certainly, and I don't think anyone thought we'd be solving this problem six months in advance and then and then just kind of you know poli- waiting for the polishing day. the brass for the next six months <laughs> or anything like that. You know, just uh, waiting for the actual date and it would go it would go smoothly. Um, but while I while I accept what um, what John is saying uh, about the last ten percent is difficult, there are certain facts I think that can't can't be changed. And Colin McCarthy in the Sunday Independent is very good on this. Um, he says, look. It may be possible that no hard border solution, uh, a hard border solution may not exist, actually. And we have to face the possibility of that fact. And he also says there's an important asymmetry to look at here between the UK, which is a sovereign government that can be flexible in the way a sovereign government can, and the EU, which is a treaty-based organization, which doesn't have the same flexibility because it has to adhere to the rules of the treaties that all of the members have signed up to, Um, which means that we might not be able to make it up and fudge when we need to. Sure, we can extend the deadlines, but he makes a very good 
point, that extension actually solves no problem that actually matters here. So at some point, you do have to make those those hard decisions. And the, the political calculus around that doesn't really change. We may just get a little more time to get used to the bad outcomes that are unavoidable at this stage, but they're coming one way or another. What is the view of exporters on that, Nicola? Like, is there an acceptance, uh, and Colin touches on it today, and I know Eamon Davis Delaney was writing yesterday in The Times about this as well, that like there there needs to be an acceptance that uh, like the idea of an invisible border is bogus whatever you know that this is the position of the government but it's not going to happen and exporters and everyone else just needs to kind of get on board with it i think the worrying thing is there's already consequences i think the companies that we already see trading like combilift on either side of the border workforce moving one place they moved a contract recently it was reported a couple of weeks ago in the newspaper from wales they got their seats manufactured in wales there was probably immediately 14 job losses in Wales. They're already losing jobs. They're already hemorrhaging exporters. There's no benefit to having to move your your supplier to Germany. You know, you can and they are and they have to protect themselves. So there's all Irish exporters are doing whatever is necessary now to protect their supply chain. So they're moving to European bases because they can't take a risk that this will end up in a big mess of soup. And I think the frustrating bit for me with the UK is they wrote the rules. They've been part of this team for a very long time. They knew this rule book. They knew the playbook. And yet they're trying to rewrite it as they exit, which I don't understand. So Michael Barnier's position is really easy. You guys helped write these rules. You signed them off. We all sat down. We all agreed them. You were a key player in writing these rules. And now that we're implementing these rules, you guys have decided to go off script and ask for a negotiation. But you can't rewrite the rules. Exactly like we said, European work together in a very slow democracy. And it's a very slow diplomatic where 27 people or 28 people come together. I do not understand how the UK are suddenly surprised and they don't know what they want. So it's, it's quite fascinating that I believe that the UK is politically lost. I think it's groupthink. I think they're all 60 plus. I think they are all uh, of a certain age, a certain ilk and a certain reality that doesn't exist anymore. And I think Europe has been incredibly diplomatic and patient to get this far. And I think we will hurt. But I think Irish exporters are already having to pass that pain along in the immediate term. And it's really, really, really awful that the people they're all trying to help are at the bottom and trying to make a living and trying to create a job. They're, they're getting slaughtered already and we haven't even gotten near the final gameplay and uh, it's worrying. John? Yeah, I was just going to say one thing that's something as, as we were talking there is that I think we can also make the mistake of looking at this and sort of trying to look at it logically and sort of say it doesn't make any sense and, and do that. Um, I mean, the, Stephen Kinsler I like has, someone who says, uh, the danger here is we're looking at this logically. logically right? <laughs> uh, Stephen Kinsler has, has captured it quite well in his article where he sort of sets out a, a, a sort of a, a balanced view of what the Brexiteers' position is and then points out all the places where it just doesn't stack up. I mean, this is down to politics and, and, and sort of history and, and politics. And as you were saying, I mean, the British have been at the table negotiating this been frankly a more important voice probably over the last 30 years than the Irish mm. have in the in the formulation of rules but that's not what's at stake here and so because it's such a political problem there one needs to find a political solution to it and it'll it'll be kicked and I think another really important point it's very hard to see when you're in Dublin and we've been saying this for some time is that an awful lot of European capitals are over this they're gone beyond this I mean, they are worrying about different things. I mean, they, if you look at our newspapers this morning, there's very little coverage of the Italian situation, which is much more pressing on the minds of many of the European policymakers in terms of what that does to the union and how that shapes the future of the union. And for people the further east, particularly, that you go, 
they're kind of like, have we got to do another summit? Is Brexit still on the table? And and at some level, I think they're kind of probably all want a quick solution to occur because they don't want another four or five summits next year talking about Brexit again. And I think that's an important dynamic to understand in, in terms of European solidarity around the main issues and how quickly things may actually get put to the end. John? Yeah, I think John, John makes a good point. I mean, you know, in Goodbody, we're, we're looking at this all the time from the investor's point of view. Um, and when we try to think of things to say about Brexit, basically what we say is uh, we're, we're going to be underweight UK assets until this is all settled. But the Italian uh, budget is much more salient for investors because it, it's affecting, again, you know, those all important bond yields that, that we cared about so much mm. about five years ago. And we're watching, you know, perhaps a sort of slow motion unraveling of the Italian fiscal situation, which for an economy as huge as that uh, and as integrated into the rest of Europe is a little bit scary for people who own European assets. So that's something we are watching much more carefully, probably at this stage than Brexit, which isn't to say Brexit isn't going to become more important to investors. But I think um, those decisions maybe were made a couple of years ago. We'll just step back, step back from from the UK for a little while and wait to see what happens. Meanwhile, other things that are more important uh, around the rest of the Europe, uh, around the rest of Europe, uh, continue on. Which isn't to say politically this isn't the most important thing probably that's going to happen to Ireland in the next twelve months. But economically, the sh- the show is moving on. Nicola, but, but that's exactly the point. The UK do not realise that the rest of Europe isn't them. And that the whole power base has moved east and that they are not the centre of the universe. And they went from being the fifth largest economy, I think, to the sixth or seventh recently. And that's without doing anything. And I think really worryingly, I think the rest of the world, they may have had a head start for the last 30 years in terms of wealth. And everybody was aspiring to be the UK. But the rest of the world is catching up. And everybody that wanted to be the UK now sees, well, actually, we could be the UK. We can take that investment. And the likes of the money... People are now pitching in a different level, a different way. They're making their uh, their democracies more sturdy for investment and more hardy for investment. And that's all changed. And we can't have Russia like we don't care here. If Russia move westwards, but they do in Romania and they do on that side of the world. We can't you know, we don't see their pain points and money will move to the other side of Europe because Romania is as well educated as we are. They've just got like a tiny GDP. And it's changing and they want to see the wealth fall out of the UK and distribute itself back across to the other side of Europe. And it may happen. And the UK may have actually just accidentally, by not paying attention to the rest of the political domain, have shot itself in the foot. And the important thing is that we don't go with them. Oh, yeah, right? absolutely. So, so, so really, I mean, for people out listening, we're always kind of like, what the hell am I supposed to be doing? Right? Yeah. The most important thing anybody could be doing today and that we as a country could be doing is making ourselves the most competitive possible. It's dealing with our own problems that are driving up rents, that are driving up house prices, that will eventually drive up wages. It's it's accessing and having new routes to get effectively to Europe and in terms of technology, in terms of software. It's building alliances across the rest of Europe because, as has been said, I think we actually are seeing a shift in, in sort of centre of gravity. And I think one thing that's really you know, very pleasing to see because I kind of lived through a period of, of time in government when there was a lot of your your scepticism going around mm. is to see that there's only, what, 7%, I think, of Irish people would like to leave the European Union. They understand the benefits of actually being part of this larger you know, union in terms of trade, in terms of political stability, in terms of peace. But it's absolutely important that we go through this massive mind shift where we sort of, at some level, think slightly Certainly differently about our nearest neighbour, 
um, you know, physically and geographically and start thinking about our other neighbours who are in the European Union and how can we, in terms of this Italian situation, you know, we should be understanding today the Italian situation. We should be understanding what that means to business between Ireland and Italy. And, of course, all of that is way too low at the moment. And so it requires a total shift. Uh, it's almost like we have to take Ireland from this position of being a, an isolated island on the, on the sort of the edge of Europe and start thinking, what would we be doing if we were actually a country slap bang in the middle of Europe, mm. besides well, Switzerland? What would we be doing in everything we do can I, in that position? Can I just follow on to that point? Yeah. Because John is right. We are ninth in the world for ranking in education. Ninth. The UK are sixth. Germany's twelfth. France, 23rd. For health, we're 11th. We're ahead of Japan at 12. Austria, 13. UK, 25. Four million people. We are already best in the world. Economic freedom, GDP, fourth best in the world. Economic freedom, we're sixth. USA, 18th. We don't see how good we've been because there's four million people. We can't tackle everything. Like, we can't be in every market. We haven't got 70 million people to go to China, to go to Russia, to go to USA, to go to Japan. We have got to choose our export markets a lot smart. And we've got to go to export markets where the GDP is high. So dashing to China with 4 million people trying to trade on the other side of the world with 4 million people is nearly impossible because if you've got 70 million people, you can do it better just by sheer scale. So we have to be really smart to target countries with high GDP. So Europe is where we should be playing. We should be in Italy really worrying about what's going on. We should be figuring out what's going to grow in Romania. We should be trying to figure out. We have overtaken the USA in so many places, but we are tiny and we are very small as a, as a sovereign wealth. But we will grow it. And if we focus really carefully on the money and ourselves and don't limit ourselves, but don't spread ourselves too thin. I think we could do more amazing things to come. We are really hard on ourselves in this country. We don't even see how good we've been because we've had our heads down working for so long. We haven't noticed how good we actually are. Uh, John, just in terms of some of the things you were saying there about making us competitive, you know, uh, part of the narrative around the budget, it was a housing budget or a health budget or this, that and the other budget, is that it was a Brexit proof budget. Was there evidence of that for you? Um. There were a lot of things done to help Brexit, right? But for me, just as I said, the and I was actually talking at something during the week here about the reaction overall to the budget, mm. right? And, and and for me, the two disappointing things about the budget was I there was a lot of row about the carbon tax and what it was going to come or co- not come, right? But there was absolutely very little in the budget to really drive Ireland into more sustainable living. You know, we know that the, the challenge of climate change. I don't think if you stop people in a vox spot in the street and you ask them what the fines are going to be in 2020, many people would understand it's going to be hundreds of millions of euros, you know, taken out of their budget because we have failed to move to being a more sustainable country in terms of how we live. We had a lot of stuff, as I said to Regina Doherty during, as she was on the panel, to deal with, you know, poverty measures. Okay, but I saw nothing in the budget that actually allows or drives people to living without a car. A car is a six thousand euro budget item, effectively before tax on people's annual income. If you could have measures to allow public transport and allow people to live without needing a car, you would put an awful lot more money in people's pockets, an awful lot more money available for their kids than just a fiver here, there or whatever. And so I think for me, there were two things that were missing in in the budget. Um, Going to the Brexit proofing of the country, which I think is actually much more important 
you know, more broadly, mm. is what were we doing to make ourselves a more sustainable country in the first place? And what were we doing to stop the real problem that I've been talking about now for some time, which is the, the 50, 60 year over dominance of Dublin? where every service in the country is put into Dublin. So everybody needs a car to get to that service. We need to do rebalancing of our country. It's in the 2040 plan. But I saw very little concrete evidence of that in the actual budget. And I think they all go to the questions of competitiveness. They go to how do our other cities connect up with Europe? How do our other cities provide alternatives for people living so that when the cost of housing becomes too expensive in one city, they have alternatives which are cheaper and more desirable to live in. And I think there's a huge issue there. And I think it's probably more going to be discussed, I suspect, in the conversations in terms of the new supply and arrangement deal than it will actually have been part of this budget. But yeah. of course, we have to remember these budgets are formed by many parties having their own views and everybody pulling in mm. different directions. But it would be very nice to now see our political leaders come forward with a real direction for the country that starts to, to, to deal with a lot of these fundamental problems. Yeah, look, on that note, we'll take a quick break. John, John and Nicola are still on the record. On News Talk. You are listening to On the Record. Kieran Goodhue with you until one o'clock. Nicola Byrne, John Ireland, John Moran are with me in studio uh, this morning on the Andrew Marr Show on BBC. The UK Brexit Secretary Dominic Raab was speaking. He's actually featured in the front page of the Sunday Telegraph in the UK, wherein he says, yeah, "Give us what we want now, or we'll leave on time." Someone making the point that it's a very British threat to do something on time, isn't it? We will do this on time. Uh, here's a little bit of the exchange between Raab and Marr. When are you next going to Brussels? I'm not quite sure, but uh, Next sooner week. rather than later. This week, perhaps? It, it, the, we're making progress day by day, and so I can't give you a firm uh, idea. And in your bowels, do you expect, do you hope for a November summit? Uh, well, look, I'm confident we can get a deal, and, uh, and equally, I think we need to have done it uh, by the, uh, towards the end of November because of just the, I think for the EU side as well, but for the UK, the practical time limits on getting our legislation through. So there's every reason we can do this deal. There's pragmatism and goodwill on both sides. But what we're not going to do, and I think it's an important point to make, Andrew, we've made concessions, we've made compromises. There does come a point where you can be compromised yourselves. OK, Dominic Crabbe there, Brexit Secretary. Deal by the end of November, he says, if it's going to be done, John? No, of course not. No. No? John? <laughs> no, I don't think. No? Nicola? I don't think so either. But no. <laughs> I'd just like to say one thing on that. I think that, I think they'll use political fudge language. I think what's on offer now from the EU will be staying on offer from the EU. I think the 27 will stay stronger. I think they will Brexit. I think they will lose a million jobs in their car industry that will never be replaced. I think they will become a backwater money laundering society uh, for all future transactions and their service industries will die and that they will take money from anywhere, any place uh, in order to try and rebuild the economy. And I think if it does go wrong, um, it'll be a lesson to everybody else to toe the line. And I think at some point the whole we've got to stand together, will actually take precedent over one person acting like a child. And they're acting like a child. And they have a precedent for this. They've walked away from more negotiations and more treaties, started more wars. They've been at war, I think it's 192 countries, and they have been at war or disagreement with 176 of them over the history uh, that we know. So I think they have form in this and I think they could easily throw the rattle out of the pram and this could be rotten. 176 down, 16 to go. Yeah. Well, we're, we're closest. I think there's good reason to be pessimistic. You know, I mean, a lot of this um, negotiation or the coverage of this negotiation has become very um, insidery, right? And it reminds me of 
all the talk around um, the banking union that happened years ago during the um, the financial crisis and the sovereign debt crisis and all of those sort of uh, 11th hour negotiations where people would come bleary eyed out of a meeting room at 3 a.m. or whatever. The difference between then and now, I think, is that before all of the participants knew roughly where we had to get to. There may have been some disagreement about the means by which we were going to, say, attain a solution to the financial crisis or the sovereign debt crisis. But broadly speaking, everybody wanted to solve the same problem. I don't think that's the case here at all. So that the, the problem that the the British want to solve is not the same problem that the EU wants to solve. And, and, and that's what makes that's what makes me pessimistic about the outcome, that whatever the outcome is, it's going to be a bad one. Uh, look, we'll move on from Brexit now. Uh, I, I want to talk about Eric Xi Yingzhu. Uh, story on the front page of the Sunday Times, Bray School by fighting deportation to China had fraudulent Irish passport. This story is about a passport that he had at some stage in the last nine years. We don't know when uh, the passport expired and it wasn't renewed. Uh, according to Mark Tai, he says uh, the passport was obtained after his mother claimed that Eric had an Irish father. Now, that's all it says. I, you have to do more than just tick a box now to, to, to get a passport for a child for the first time. Uh, an Irish passport, you have to provide a lot of evidence that uh, at least one of you as a parent is Irish. Uh, but look, this is a story that got a huge amount of attention during the week. Um, I was speaking about it on Kira Kelly's show on, on Thursday when I was standing in for Kira, and I made a plain m- my view on it that I don't think he should be deported, that I, I voted against that referendum anyway in 2004, but I was absolutely in the minority then. Uh, but it, it did raise questions about about nationality and ethnicity and citizenship. And look, there's lots of people who disagree with me. Um, but uh, John, uh, John Isle, I'd be interested in your views on this because, you know, there would be a, a school of thought out there uh, that says that, you know, Eric is Chinese. By extension, I suppose you can never be Irish, and mm. your children will only ever be half Irish yeah, yeah. because of you. So, so this is very personal to me. I'm a naturalized Irish citizen um, since 2008, and I remember being heartbroken uh, over this referendum. I'd been living here uh, consecutively for five years at that time, and was married at the time as well, uh, and so I had permanent leave to remain in the country. But what that referendum told me was that my status in this country was contingent on the opinions of the people around me, and not anything essential to me. And what that means is that I was always going to have an insecure existence here. And that was part of the reason I decided to activate um, my right to citizenship in 2008. you said interestingly there that you know my kids will only ever ever be half Irish. Um, they, they have the advantage of one belonging to a different generation, which I think views these uh, these relationships, the relationship of individuals to nations, a lot differently than say my generation. I'm 45 years old, and certainly the generation older than me. Um, what I always say to them is that they're not half of anything; they're both. They're both American and Irish, and and I think that's something people should be able to get their heads around. So. This boy, Eric, can be Chinese and he can be Irish at the same time. I don't see those two things as being in conflict. But what I think people are waking up to is that what they voted on in 2004 was almost like a risk-free option for them. What they were signaling was a sort of emotional opinion. And in my opinion, they were they were signaling an emotion about nationality. What nationality means to me is that your parents are this as opposed to by being born here, you become one of us. And it was really at the time, don't forget, was when all of the Eastern countries had uh, joined the European Union. And, mm. and people were freaking out, actually, about an influx of people from Poland and Romania, not to say Nigeria and China at the time as well. So all sorts of new people were arriving in the country, and there was a bit of a panic about it. I remember that panic distinctly. I wrote something at the time from McGill Magazine 
um, about what I called invisible immigrants. Actually, at the time, the greatest number of immigrants in this country came from Anglophone countries like the United States, Australia, Canada, and so forth. But we weren't really considered immigrants at all. Even though all of these laws affected us in the same way, the assumption was that, oh, these laws don't affect you because you're sort of us anyway already. And and just Because of a shared Anglophone tradition or because you looked more like us? Well, both, right? But I mean, look, we can sit here, I can tell you all the ways in which I'm very different from you, right? That's not exactly the point. Um, the, the point is that there was this sort of invisible distinction being made between types of immigrants to whom the law applied equally, okay? So I, I was the same as a Chinese or a Nigerian at that point. And this is what, what freaked me out, is that like the racism against Chinese or Nigerian people at the time was going to apply to me, right? So I was gonna get caught in the tsunami's backwash. And, but what we're seeing now 14 years later is the consequence of not really thinking through what that referendum would mean. And here we are 14 years later, we're all used to Chinese people. We're all used to Nigerian people. We're used to Polish and Lithuanian people in the country, right? It's 10% of, of the country is foreign born. This isn't as scary as it used to be, but now we're seeing the consequences of children born to, let's call them, um, uh, un, un, unnaturalized immigrants, people whose status is irregular, they appear to us to be Irish, but legally they're not Irish. And the law says we have to send them home. This this is a stateless child. Oh, we have to send them abroad. We, sorry, we have to send them abroad. This is a stateless child. He's not Chinese according to their laws either. So I believe according to the UN, we're not allowed to, to actually deport this kid. So, so there might be problems there. Um, but what we have to figure out is who, who gets, who owns Irishness and who gets to belong to Irishness. And it seems the emotional reaction to this is, if you're born here, you grew up here, he probably speaks Irish for God's sake. This is an Irish child. He just doesn't look like what an Irish child looked like 20 years ago or 14 years ago when, when this referendum was passed. So there's, there's a bit of soul searching I think we have to do. We need to figure out what are the boundaries of Irishness. Is, is, uh, I thought that referendum was regressive in that it said Irishness is about your bloodline. Yeah, but see, when you say we have to find out, like, do we? Is it not just subjective? Uh, it's not subjective. I mean, nationality is a is a is a group consensus decision, right? And different countries do it, do, do it in different ways. Exactly, right? So the American idea of what an American is, right, is not just that you're born there. And now this is probably contested at the moment as well. We can talk about Trump later. But what what it means to be an American is that you buy into a certain idea, right? That you've you've arrived there or you were born there, but we're all sort of moving in the same direction. We have a common destiny together. And like that's tied up in a lot of craziness in America. We know that. But in Europe, historically, it's been about your bloodline. I'm, I'm not sure Ireland had birthright citizenship for a while for reasons having to do with the Good Friday mm. Agreement. But I thought it was a step back into Europe's dark past to say what matters is who your parents are, not who you are and who you belong to. This child belongs to Ireland. He's, he's Irish in that way. Just because his mother was born somewhere else and immigrated illegally, I don't think should deprive him of that privilege. John, what are your views on this? Yeah, it's interesting because I don't know where I was all week. So it was a big issue. I seem to know nothing about this until I came in this morning. I mean, I missed the whole thing. And it, it's funny because I, I guess I was born in, in England, right? And moved here. So I used to. Oh, I was born in the UK. Nicola? I'm Joe. Irish. <laughs> <laughs> my DNA says I'm a Celt. My DNA says I'm Irish too. No, no, I'm all Irish. My DNA says I'm from Limerick and Belfast and Scotland and Wales is my, my bloodlines. I got my DNA test done. And uh, I was fascinated. My mother's like one or two percent German and 
I didn't realise I was a culture because I've always been a dub. John is right. We're, we're going through a, a major transition in this country in terms of how we look at, you know, things. I mean, you know, we talk about our, I mean, particularly in the presidential election, we talk about this diaspora of people who are Irish, right? And we embrace them. But people can come here, spend 10 years or even longer in our country and they leave. And do we consider them to be part of our diaspora? And I, was, I, think, I think we are... You know, Europe is going through itself, and I mean, obviously, the US has, has had a bit of this debate in the last while. It's going through a very different sort of you know thought process about what it means to be either European or Irish and multi sort of citizenry almost. I mean, and belonging to different bodies of groups and different people. And I think it's really important. And I suspect that the referendum process that we've had in more recent referenda was much healthier for the country because it allowed a proper debate to occur as opposed to I don't like referenda generally because I think they always try and deal with complex issues in one simple answer. Mm. Um, but, but I think we saw in the more recent referenda processes a much more informed debate around the issue and a different consensus than perhaps many people would have expected going into the into the debate in the first mm. place. And I think that's something we could, we could certainly call out. I, mean, I thought another aspect of this that I sort of connecting up a couple of different things in the newspapers and some of the stuff I felt myself, I think, you know, they, it's the sort of Simon Harris, George Hook sort of debate that appeared in terms of, I think we have to remember that there is a young kid here you know, who is a young kid called Eric, who is actually reading about himself and hearing about himself all over the newspapers, all over Twitter, and, and subjected to a barrage, no doubt, of comment about himself and others in the streets. And I think we all have a responsibility, and the media have a particular responsibility, as do politicians, to not let ourselves into that. I mean, I'm sort of thinking, I mean, Frances Fitzgerald had an article where she talked as well about the impact on her. And she's coming at it from, from the inside. Yeah. I had the same issue with respect to what politicians were using parliamentary privilege for. You know, and you have a very little ability to respond. And so here we are having a debate about whether this kid is Chinese or this kid is Irish. And I'd love to ask Eric, what does he mm, think he is? Yeah. And get his view, not necessarily have commentators just throw their own minds around. Mm. You know. Nicola, we do, and to go all the way back to something John said about telling his children that you know they're both American and Irish, you can be both. Like in Ireland, but he's right. Yeah, but he's right. But I suppose my what I was going to ask is, do we the label? Who needs any of it? We <laughs> developed. Did we develop a kind of a, a very simplistic or narrow view of nationality in this country because of no. we didn't have inward migration for a long time, and because I suppose post independence independence uh, for whatever reason you know that the, what was imposed was this idea of this kind of Celtic shared Celtic Gaelic origin story for all of us uh, which wasn't really true most of us actually um, and, and that's what we're seeing is kind of there's a legacy of that of that that there was this kind of narrow definition of nationality No I think Ireland has only recently found its young voice and I say young voice is because my 20 year old's in politics in UCD and she is politicised more than I've ever been in my entire life. In fact, I'm the least political person I even know. We never legislate for the exception. We always legislate for the majority. So this child should be, his name should be removed from the conversation. If we're going to have a debate about this and we have to have this debate because when Brexit happens, there's going to be a couple of million people knocking on our doorstep mm. trying to get in. Because half of Europe that's living in the UK won't live there because exactly as John said there, John 1 said <laughs> that uh, it hurts. 
And when you hurt people, and it's not rational, but like I've been talking to so many UK citizens. So the last day a girl whispered to me that she was a foreigner on Thursday in Estee Lauder's headquarters. She whispered to me, I'm a foreigner. And I said, well, you're European. She goes, but I can't say that anymore in London. And I was like, you're hurt. And she's visibly hurt. And this has a really big repercussion back into Ireland because we're going to see a lot of hurt Mancunians who are actually from France moving over to work in Google. We are going to have a huge amount of influx of people. And this debate does not need to be personalised, this child. This child should be let stay. I mean, making this a, a national... Oh, he will be. Like, it, this is a, Charlie <laughs> Fannigan will absolutely but, use his discretion. But make but the decision quickly. Yeah, yeah, let's get it over with. He should have done it have the debate. Yeah. Yeah. But let, let's have an adult debate about it because I don't want to hurt John. I want his kids to feel welcome. I want them to work here. I want us to thrive as an open diverse society of every culture, creed, religion and age. We and don't can, want to be on It's funny because, I mean, I don't know if John puts me in the same generation as he does or not because he's been 46, <laughs> I'm just over 50, right? But, but I can remember <laughs> leaving university in Ireland in the 80s and having to pick whether I went to the UK, which is where I was born, or whether I went to the US, and having interacted with the British system at sort of, you know, at, at certain levels, I decided I wanted to go to the US because they were much more embracing. And I think Ireland needs to adopt that. I mean, I think we need to be seen across Europe as a country that welcomes people from other creeds and other nationalities and believes in diversity and inclusion. And, and, and that will actually stand to us. And I think that if this is a reason, but I'd like, as you said, to take this, this particular person yeah. out of it and depersonalise it, let's have another debate on this. Yeah, look, that's very well said. On that note, better take a quick break. Back in a moment. On the record. On News Talk. This is News Talk. You are listening to On the Record. Kieran Cuddy with you until one o'clock. Five three one zero six is the text number that will cost you thirty cent. Or as always, you can get me on Twitter at Kieran Cuddy. Uh, I mentioned before the break we were talking about Eric Shi Yingzu and that it was a big story, getting a lot of attention during the week. Uh, John Moore said he'd missed must must have missed a lot of it. Uh, another story that got a lot of attention during the week, John, that I'm sure you didn't miss was around planning and city planning and College Green uh, and the, the the plaza that has been rejected. What because you've been in the studio talk, talking to me about about these types of issues. What were your thoughts on that? It, it's funny because when I saw, I mean, obviously I was disappointed, right? Because I, whatever you might think about the specifics of the scheme, I think this was a step forward for Dublin in terms of how Dublin actually operates, how it's seen in, in the public. Uh, one of the things that jumped out at me, and I kind of curiously wondered whether really this is what's behind some of the rejections of that, is that it seemed that some of our own organs of the state hadn't got their act together to come up with a single plan. I mean, if I recall the details correctly, and I stand correct to be corrected mm. if I'm wrong, but Parliament Street, which was a key part of the thing, had one organ of the state suggesting one bus route, had another organ of the state suggesting two. And I don't think it's fair to ask the people of Ambord Planola to actually be the arbitrators of something like that. Between so, two departments. Yeah, so I sort of feel like partly what was really happening there is he said, go back to the drawing board, come up with a proper scheme, we don't reject the scheme, but, and, and sort of, you know, but, but at the same time, there's some very important sub-issues there, right? So there was a lot of debate about, oh, well, hang on a minute, we've got to figure out what about the tourists going to the hotel right on it and can they stop in front of the hotel and everything else. And I think we are 
in great need of a much bigger debate. It's like the other one we just talked about, about where does the common good prevail over individual interests when it comes to planning and setting up our country and deciding things. And and I, I also noticed, actually, because the guy said that they were going to talk about this, that there's also a refusal of a planning permission for a building down over Tower Street. Yeah, Johnny Ronan's Tower, Johnny as people Tower. will know it. Right? He's been three years trying to deal with the objections and then he gets thrown I'm not going to talk one way or another about the merits, but our system just cannot wait three years to try and figure out that kind of stuff and then have somebody get to the end of that and do an end. This, cu- this Customs House Plaza thing has been going on for so long that, that actually almost people don't believe it can ever happen. Meanwhile, going back to our Brexit conversation and everything else, every day that goes past, we lose a little bit of competitiveness. Our city becomes less attractive to live in and everything else. Meanwhile, there are other cities across Europe storming ahead. And, and that's where I think there are it's almost like there. it's a constitutional question. What does actually property rights mean in the context of the common good? What, the, going back to the other thing I've talked to you about a lot is how much of our eggs are we going to put in a Dublin basket as opposed to making other cities? And, this, and what a lot of people like me have been saying is let's take those other cities because it seems like Dublin is so entrenched with private interests at the moment and vested interests that you can't find these compromises. Let's try it out in some other cities where maybe it's easier to, to make that happen first. Learn from mistakes and learn what good planning looks like and good practice and bring it back east at that stage. Nicola, the, uh, John mentioned as with other European cities as well and like those big municipal plazas, they do work well in other European cities, but not yeah, Dublin. I'm getting really tired of being told to get out of my car. I'm really so... I cannot tell you how angry it's making me. I moved into a new house in the central Malahide, right into the village. The neighbour met me. Now, my other half doesn't drive. He drives a bicycle. So we're working from a point where I've never been the bicycle. In fact, every time I've fallen, I've got a stitch in my face, it's off the bicycle. So I'm not great in those bicycle things. But I'm tired. First thing the neighbour said to me was, fantastic place to live. Now, I only moved 100 yards. and uh, So I didn't say where I'd moved from. And uh, she was explaining me all the benefits of how wonderful the place was. And the first thing she said to me was, but there's no parking. It's dreadful around here. There's killings every day. And I thought, well, the first thing you say to me when I move in here, there's killings every day about the parking. Are you not listening to me? I pay all the taxes in the damn country. I've been paying taxes since I was 18. I pay so much tax, I'm getting tired of it. And when I find that nothing has been built to what I want, because some other person has a belief that I should be on a bicycle and that I should get on a bus and I try to go to a meeting across the city. I've tried to use the Lewis and I've tried to use buses and I've tried. I end up in a taxi and the taxi end up subversively stopped behind a Lewis because the Lewis has stood the cross point of the city, the cross section of the city, the Lewis has stopped it. I'm tired to be told I'm the enemy. I'm being tired to be told that everything I do is wrong. I'm really getting sick of it. And no one has asked me because somebody has decided that bicycles are the only way or walking is the only way. And everywhere I go. So in every other city in Europe, and I mean without fail, Marseille built their main city, on their main road under the city. I go to Italy. I go into the most famous uh, historical sites and there's a five-storey car park underneath them. We don't do that. Let me take my car. Italy doesn't plan to have a fabulous central plaza. And yes, they do. But if you go underground, there's a five-storey deep car park and a bicycle park. And Amsterdam are building bicycles and they're going under the city. We won't go under. I have no idea why we're not planning for the future. Years ago, the College Green chaos has happened because Mary O'Rourke wouldn't let the Lewis go underground. 
she chickened out of a political decision. And everything we've seen since then is a repercussion from that. In fact, our politicians oh, well, moving, no, the moving the next not going around is no. they'd still be digging because every 10 feet they'd have to stop for a year but because you know, they'd we'd, find some wall or skeleton. But wouldn't it be better to wait for the digging to happen and then see the 100 years benefit? Like if it took 10 years, so what? The next 100 years for our kids would actually have a city where cars do disappear, but they do disappear. But in reality, they're facilitated. Look, the whole world has gone green. And yet Elon Musk is up there because he's making electric Cars. He's not making two million electric bicycles. He's making two million cars because there's demand for cars. People want their cars. If they didn't, he wouldn't have a valuation. And, you know, being told that I'm wrong every time I say I want my car, I am sick of it. I can't be wrong. I want my car. I pay taxes. I think I'm a good person. And for God's sake, how did I become the enemy? John, tell her why she's the enemy and a bad person and she's wrong. I am a bad person. (laughs) I'm sick of it. I'm going to stick with a public transport example here right so we've probably all been in the city with good public transport where somebody comes to that door just as it's about to close shoves their bag in the door okay and stops the train for one minute okay or two minutes even in it happens in the metro in paris it happens in the subway and for two or three minutes more there was another train coming into that station that that person could have gotten into But that selfish decision to hold the train for three minutes has actually caused a two or three minute delay for every one of the people in that train getting to the next stop, right? Cars actually operate in many ways the same thing. It seems like a nice thing to have my car in my city, my parking space in front of it. And this is what I meant by the common good against selfish interest. I don't want to call you selfish, Nicola, but hear me out. When, When Nicola drives her car in, I would have no problem if Nicola's car was the only car going into Dublin Centre. Okay? That we find. The problem is is that there are four or five hundred thousand Nicolas wanting to drive their cars well, around maybe Dublin. There's a clue in that. And, four or five hundred thousand people know, can't be wrong. We know <laughs> that the point we actually build roads and when we build them wider to deal with congestion, it becomes easier to drive a car and more people You've get got in a cars bloody motorway and keep to going. Limerick. The, the <laughs> and reality, there's nobody on it. Can I just finish, please? Right. <laughs> the reality is, is that when we ask people to go on public transport, it's not as comfortable. OK, it's not as comfortable to be sharing your private space with everybody else. But there are a large number of people out there at the moment in Dublin and in other cities that understand that living in a community, living in shared spaces requires less selfish decisions. But what we haven't done in this country is we haven't actually resourced those public transport. I got on a bus the last day from Island Bridge. When I come out now in my house in Island Bridge, I have no comfort that the next three buses will stop or maybe even four buses because they could be full. I went down to the next stop. Luckily, the bus driver stopped because I was on my own. Had we been four people, he couldn't have stopped. The next bus stop, a woman got on who was pregnant. None of us realised because she was wearing a coat until she actually sat down. We were all standing there waiting, none of the people sitting down. This should not be happening in a modern city. And part of the reason is if you look at the allocation of funds in the last budget, because we talked about that, Mm. there are many, many more millions being allocated to people who are actually on the roads of of the country. Getting around. Now, there is an element of having to deal with that when you get into rural Ireland and the way we badly built our country, talking about planning, by spreading it out too much. But when we get to our urban spaces, 
there's time for another one of those great debates that we need to have. It sounds like we need to have a lot of debates other mm. than on Sunday morning <laughs> for an hour to actually deal with that. We need have you to been deal to with Amsterdam lately? Absolutely. In fact, I'm and I ride Amsterdam is so dangerous that bicycles have priority over pedestrians. So if you get hit by a bicycle and you're a pedestrian in Amsterdam, it's mental. And what they've in done... Fact, it's I, go so extreme that people have actually stopped moving to Amsterdam to ride bike and they're actually starting to rebel and we're actually starting to push back because guess what? Open spaces and communal living, of course we're communal creatures. We want to live together. Nobody's arguing against that. I'm all for big open planning. And, and I'm all for exactly what you just said. But not at the cost of, of the other at the other look. Yeah, because you know something? That is the future. Like the stock markets tell us that's the future. That's where the money's going. It's going into car manufacturing. Drive, and yet if, I, policy I has weekend, the opposite. I, I spent last weekend with my nephew and niece in Paris. Okay, which and has density that Ireland will never see because guess what it's a tiny island with people so spread out across it and you keep wanting to spread it out further by having a city in another location instead of letting the capital develop to a density that makes public transport viable well, I don't think you're John, delusional I'm going to put it's words, mad he doesn't want to spread Ireland out like, yeah, yeah, but he does because you know if you keep putting resources we have four million people we have four million people and the problem no wait John I've we listened have to six it. million there, people coming four, very well, quickly yes but right now we have four and a half and at that four and a half if you spread them out then the resources have to spread and ev- and I'm not saying I love motorways they're the best thing we've ever done you can move jobs you can of commute of course you love motorways hours. you love cars I don't yes. like motorways I like trains but, but and if you listen to what I was saying I did not say to spread it out I suggested but you one, are because you're excuse diversing excuse me can I finish I suggested one alternative poll at the other side of a train, which is a rapid train, so that when I come into the country and you were saying yourself that you'd like all these people to come into the country, I do not have to rely on Dublin to provide me housing. I could actually go well, somewhere we'll else which might be cheaper. Okay. When it happens. We're almost it out of happened. time and John Isle has been sitting back cool, and he's going to have to weigh in here as the independent arbiter. Uh, my, my ideal self agrees with John, but my real self agrees with Nicola. And I'll explain this. I had to, I had to buy myself a new car last month and I went through the decision-making process that John talks about, which is, do I really need a car, right? So I live about four miles outside the city center. I work closer. I work about three miles away from the city center. So like a little too far to walk. So I usually walk to the dart and then take the dart or I t- take my son to school first and then, I, and then I get the dart. But when it came down to it, I realized even living as close as I do to the city center, I couldn't do without a car for the reliability reasons that John talks about. And also for convenient reasons. This is a very wet country. Well, I still haven't, got, <laughs> still haven't got used to that, right? So I sort of need that, you know, the protective bubble from time to time to drop my son at school, in the car, and then I can't find parking near the train station. Elon so Musk should be investing in bicycles with umbrellas. Yeah. But the, <laughs> Nick, Nick, sorry, Nicholas' point about car parks is a really good one because, uh, so I'll, I'll drop my son in Monkstown where his school is and then I'll go to Black Rock to try to park my car so I can take the dart the rest of the way in to town. Most days there isn't a parking space for me because there's only about 50 spots for the whole station. It's one of the busiest stations on the dart. And there's no parking for people who want to park and ride. So then I just drive in. And I'm driving into Balls Bridge then and then parking my car somewhere on the street and paying for it. And it's ridiculous and inefficient and, and terrible, right? So I want to live in the city that John believes in, but I actually live in the city that Nicola is talking about, which is a problem. So there's a status quo bias in all this planning, which says, well, people are already driving. We have to make it more comfortable for them. So the, the city That's that John, they believe. the city that John imagines is, is maybe 50 years in the future if we start taking those decisions now. I desperately want to live in that city. 
but I don't I think, we, I don't think we actually about, do. But to talk about bias, because we're looking at newspapers, let everybody open the Sunday Independent today. When you get to the first page, which is real news, it directs you to page four. The reason is because page two and page three are car ads. That is what we've actually <laughs> the end of yeah. Good choices. Three, three big cars there driving up an empty motorway. As oh, well. very nice. Uh, look, uh, on that note, my thanks to everyone <laughs> to uh, for coming in. Uh, Nicola Byrne, John Isle and John Moran. We'll be back in a moment. On the record. On, the record. On News Talk.